And while you have your Bibles open, please turn with me this evening as we step into our sermon to Ezekiel 16. Ezekiel 16 this evening. We were in Ezekiel 16 last week. I'd like you to turn to verse 49. This is going to be a little bit of a sidelight, we might say, side message. Just one here in Ezekiel 16. It was a big chapter of Scripture, a lot to cover. And we kind of brushed over something that I'd like to focus in on a little bit more. Have you ever looked at the world around you? Maybe it's the whole world as you've thought about it. Or maybe it's just been Minnesota. Or maybe it's just been Buffalo or the town in which you live. I think I'm the only one here this evening that lives in Buffalo, but whatever town you might be from as you're listening here or as you're listening online this evening, and you've looked at that group, that population, and you've said, what difference can I make? What difference can I make? I'm one person. How much of a difference can I really make in this world? World that's hurtling in a certain direction. Seems to be picking up speed like a like a snowball rolling down a hill. It seems to be picking up speed every day, headed towards apostasy. What difference could I possibly make? Can I even make a difference? This evening's message, I'd like to encourage you in that regard. It's not going to sound like an encouragement in that regard for the first while. We're going to be speaking about the sin of Sodom. Ezekiel 16 verses 49 and 50 tell us a little bit about the sin of Sodom. But as we work through what it is that defined this city, this well-known city in the Scriptures called Sodom, a city which um, has really defined an entire lifestyle today, I'd like us to close the message being encouraged by what the example of Sodom and the account, the historical account surrounding the destruction of this city could mean for you and could mean for me as we go out into a world and seek to win the lost to Christ and seek to make disciples of Jesus Christ. See, Sodom is one of the most infamous cities in all of Scripture. We might say it's the poster child for the characteristics of a people group that qualify them for the wrath of God. And we know that as God's church, we are not among those that are under the wrath of God. Romans chapter 5, verse 9 says, Much more than being now justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. So we are not under the wrath of God. Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22 says this, And you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your minds by wicked works, yet now hath He reconciled in the body of His flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in His sight. See, in the eyes of God, through Christ, we stand before Him God, 
the judge, unblameable, unreprovable, holy in his sight. We are not a church that's under the wrath of God. You are not people under the wrath of God if you are a born-again believer this evening. On the cross, see, what we just remembered this evening, the body and the blood of Jesus Christ as His body hung on the cross and as His blood was spilt, the wrath of God that you deserved was placed on Him. The pain and the anguish and the suffering and the agony that was yours by right was placed on Him by grace. So you are not under the wrath of God because Christ placed Himself under the wrath of God. This is what Isaiah chapter 53 verses 4 and 5 says. Surely He hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem Him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted, but He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him and with His stripes, we are healed. Now, this doesn't mean that we won't stand before God one day and be judged. It doesn't mean that our works will not come up again. It simply means that when the book of life is opened, our name is in it. It means that when the end of the the day of judgment comes, you will be found in Christ and you will have eternity with Him. But First Corinthians, or Second Corinthians 5, verse 10 tells us this, that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according that, to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Now, that word all literally does mean all. That everyone will indeed stand before the judgment seat of Christ. That everyone will give a reckoning for what they have done in this life, whether it be good or whether it be bad. Now, our judgment will be focused on rewards. We will either gain much reward or we will gain less reward. This isn't a condemnation judgment. This is a rewards judgment. We're going to have the Olympics coming up here in just a few days. And when the Olympics start, the three people standing at the podium in the end are receiving rewards for their hard work and for their accomplishment. None of those three are under any condemnation, but they do get tiers of rewards, do they not? You have a gold medal, you have a silver medal, and you have a bronze medal. None of those are a bad thing, but one of those things is better than the other two. When we stand to be judged by Christ, when we stand before Him in judgment one day, we are standing before Him to receive reward, to get perhaps the gold, perhaps the silver, perhaps the bronze. Certainly on that day, everyone who got a bronze will wish they had worked hard enough to get the the gold. Everyone who got a silver will wish they worked hard enough to get the gold. But at the end of the day, we're all taking our rewards and casting them at the feet of Jesus Christ anyway. Which is why we want to do the best for Him. So that we can cast the most and the best at His feet. Not for our glory, but for His. 1 Corinthians 3 gives us a picture of this. We know it's speaking specifically to pastors, but verses 13 through 15 are are legitimately able to be transferred to our own lives as individual believers. 
Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. So we're not talking about eternal condemnation for believers. We're talking about rewards. More reward, less reward, rewards. A believer need not fear the judgments of hellfire, but we ought to live with a constant understanding that our works will be judged and we will receive reward and suffer loss. Now the unbelieving world, however, they are on an entirely different path. They are on the wide path. The path that the majority in this world will be on. They are on the path toward eternal judgment under the wrath of God in a place of eternal torment called the lake of fire. Romans chapter 1 verse 18 tells us this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. This wrath, the wrath of God, puts them on a path towards righteous judgment. But the actions of the unrighteous also have consequences in this life. And the most vivid biblical example of the consequences of sin upon a society are seen through the judgment of the city of Sodom and its surrounding cities, including a city called Gomorrah. The city of Sodom has become synonymous with a society that is abjectly filthy and exceedingly unrighteous. And this evening, what I'd like us to do is understand the sins that led to God's judgment upon this once great city and understand where we, the righteous, fit into a society of such great wickedness. Our time of application will also reveal to us just how closely our Western world parallels the wickedness of the society of Sodom. And so if you would, please turn with me this evening to Genesis 19. I'm going to jump right into the account of the angels as they went to Sodom. Two angels entered Sodom and according to Genesis 18, they did so with a purpose. God said, the wickedness of the city cries out unto me so that I will destroy this city. We'll talk about what happened in Genesis 18 a little bit later on in the service. But as the angels enter the city to see if indeed it is as wicked as the cry of the city up to God would make it to be, Scriptures tell us that a man named Lot, Abraham's nephew and a righteous man, was sitting at the gate, a leader in the city, and he met them. And he spoke kindly to them and he invited them to stay with him at his house that evening. They refused. They said, no, we'll stay in the street this night. But Lot insisted that they would come that they would stay in his house and that he might be able to show them hospitality. They eventually agree and they come to his home for the evening. It is here that we begin to see the sin of Sodom exposed. Verse 4 says, But before they lay down, the men of the city, even the men of Sodom, compassed the house round. 
both old and young, all the people from every quarter, and they called unto Lot and said unto him, Where are the men which came in to thee this night? Bring them out unto us that we may know them. And Lot went out at the door unto them and shut the door after him and said, I pray you, brethren, do not so wickedly. Behold, now I have two daughters which have not known man. Let me, I pray you, bring them out unto you and do ye to them as is good in your eyes. Only unto these men do nothing, for therefore came they under the shadow of my roof. Now, we're not going to touch this evening on Lot's offering of his daughter or any of the daughters. We're not going to go there this evening. Uh, we don't have time for that this evening. But as we stick to the story at hand, what I, what I want us to see is the extreme wickedness of these people. The men of the city surrounded Lot's house and demanded that these men be brought out to fulfill their sensual lusts. The men don't want women. They want other men. And they demand very urgently that this would, would come to pass. Lot says, no, don't do this. They say, we will. We're going to take it. And if we can't have them, we'll take you. And as they pressed upon the door, Lot cried out. The angels opened the door, struck these men of Sodom with blindness, and pulled Lot into the house before these men could attack him. They immediately tell Lot in verses 12 and 13 to take anyone of his family that, w that he can and to leave the city, to flee to the mountains. Lot goes to his married daughters and says, we need to flee, God is going to destroy this city. And they mocked him. So he took his unmarried daughters, these two young ladies, he took his wife and they fled. Abraham, in Genesis 18, had interceded for this city. We'll get there again in a little bit. And had gotten God down to the point where if there had been but ten people in the city who were righteous, God would not destroy the city. As it turns out, at best there were only four. Quite possibly there was only one. May have just been Lot. And his daughters and wife perhaps got out simply because they heeded a warning. As they fled the city... Fire and brimstone began to rain down upon this wicked city and the cities surrounding. The angels had specifically told them that you may not look back. Flee and do not look back. Lot's wife, disregarding that command, looked back upon the city as it fell into ruin and she was turned into a pillar of salt. And so it was Lot and his two daughters that averted the judgment of this wicked city and thus would end the history of the wicked city of Sodom. Now, that being said, Sodom comes up quite regularly in the Scriptures. Comes up to describe cities and nations and societies and people groups that are excessively wicked and depraved, that are unfaithful to the Lord God. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 17, God specifically forbids the women of Israel from becoming prostitutes and specifically forbids the men of Israel from becoming sodomites. Both references to forms of sexual impurity that are against natural uses. Throughout the Old Testament, Israel is likened unto those of Sodom and Gomorrah only at the very peaks of their unfaithfulness to God. And so it is that when we see a nation or a people manifest the sins of Sodom, 
we see a people that are at the very height of their wicked rebellion against the Lord God. And that brings us back to Ezekiel chapter 16 this evening. If you would turn back there with me. Ezekiel 16, verse 49 and 50, say this. Behold, this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom. Pride, fullness of bread, and abundance of idleness was in her and in her daughters. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. And they were haughty and committed abomination before me. Therefore I took them away as I saw good. The four particular sins mentioned in verse 49 are these. Pride, fullness of bread, abundance of idleness, and forgetting the poor. These four sins manifested themselves in the next two being haughty, proudful, and committing abominations before God. And God says it is for that reason that I took them away. As we think about this sin of pride, Proverbs chapter 16 verse 18 says this, Pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. By its very character, pride leads men, leads cities, leads societies, leads nations, and leads civilizations into ruin. Pride leads to ruin. But we must understand something else about pride as well. Proverbs 8 verse 3 tells us this, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogancy and the evil way, and the froward mouth do I hate. Pride is listed as one of those sins that is directly opposed to the fear of the Lord. That if you fear the Lord, you will hate pride. You will reject pride. So it's not just that pride leads to a physical ruin, but pride can really be the absolute spiritual downfall of a man, or of a church, or of a nation. Pride is devastating in its spiritual and physical effects. And so by being a city defined by pride, we likewise recognize Sodom to have been a city that did not fear the Lord. Now the second mention of the sins of Sodom was fullness of bread. This is an interesting one as it's listed. Because inherently, being a prosperous person or a prosperous nation is not sinful, is not wicked. But what God is showing here is that their fullness of bread caused them, caused a condition in their city which brought about sin. Proverbs chapter 30 verses 8 and 9 say this, Remove far from me vanity and lies. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food convenient for me, lest I be full and deny thee and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and take the name of my God in vain. I love this proverb written by a man named Agur, the son of Jaca. He petitions the Lord and he asks the Lord for neither poverty nor riches. And he says, God, don't give me riches because rich men tend to deny you. Rich men have a tendency in their plentifulness, in their prosperity to say, I don't need God. I've got everything I need in my bank account. I've got everything I need hidden under my mattress. I've got everything I need in me. 
And he said, don't make me a poor man either because the poor man is tempted to deny the Lord, to profane the Lord by stealing, by, not, by, by proclaiming to God that God is not capable of providing. And so he is going to take that which is not his in order to provide for himself rather than trusting in the Lord to provide him. Agur said, don't make me poor. And God, don't make me rich. Give me enough to live so that I might be satisfied to say, God provided for me. Praise the Lord. During the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ, he would say these words in Mark 10, 25. Children, how hard is it for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. There are a few different theories as to what this means, the camel going through the eye of a needle. Many people historically say that there was a small entrance for camels into the city that was often referred to as the eye of the needle. And the camel could not go through this on his walking on his legs. He had to get down and kind of scoot through it. And in order to get through it, he had to remove all of his excess baggage. Other people say it was a direct analogy that we would think of today. You have a needle and you have a camel and you're trying to get it through. Historically, not everyone is in agreement as to what it says. But the fact of the matter is, what Jesus Christ is saying is it's very difficult, though not impossible. It is impossible for the man that trusts in riches to enter into the kingdom of God because he's trusting not in God, but in riches. It is not impossible for the rich man to enter into the kingdom of God, but he must forsake his trust in those riches in order to enter. He taught that the allure of personal self-sufficiency that comes with being a wealthy person makes it excessively difficult for these wealthy people to develop in their hearts the poverty of spirit necessary to place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. And we have learned in 1 Corinthians the same concept. 1 Corinthians one twenty six, Paul said, For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. It is not that wealthy men cannot be saved, but wealth is accompanied by an inherent temptation toward self-sufficiency that precludes one's ability to humbly accept Christ. And so as we consider the second sin of Sodom, fullness of bread, it wasn't inherently that they were wealthy, that they were prosperous that caused the problem. The problem was more in the fact that in their fullness of bread, they said, we don't need God. God is not um, a priority for us because we have everything that we need in ourselves. Third on the list was abundance of idleness, abundance of idleness. You've heard it said before, idle hands are the devil's playthings, right? Idle hands are the devil's playthings. Diligence and work ethic are not just virtues of successful people, they are also virtues that by their very nature keep people out of trouble. They do. Staying busy keeps people out of trouble. When minds and hands are busy, they don't have time to cause problems. When I was in high school, I worked at a daycare. It was an after, a before and after school care for elementary school kids. And rule number one, especially as it regard, was in regard to the little boys, was this. Keep them busy. Keep them busy. 
time after you, you, you have your snack time, right? And, and the boys eat the snack and then they, they drink their drink and now it's time to go to the bathroom. And you take the boys to the bathroom and it's not that the boy goes to the bathroom and then he stays in the bathroom until all the other boys are done. The girls might have been able to do that and then all stay together and then you walk out together. doesn't work with boys. The boy's done, you get him out of there, you get him back to another leader because if he's sitting in there with only one leader and a bunch of boys and nothing to do, he's going to tear a door off the wall. That's how little boys work. Because idle hands find a way to stay busy, especially little kids. But it's not necessarily especially little kids, is it? It's just the way we stay busy changes over the years. Our troublemaking changes as we get a little older. Idleness breeds sin. Idleness breeds sin. Breeds wrong behavior. And the fourth and final sin of Sodom in Ezekiel chapter 16 verse 49 is forgetting the poor. Scriptures reveal that there's a special place in the heart of God for the poor and needy. God commanded the nation of Israel not to forget the poor. In Deuteronomy chapter 15 verse 11 he said this, For the poor shall never cease out of the land. Therefore I command thee, saying, Thou shalt open thine hands wide unto thy brother, to thy poor, and to thy needy in the land. The heart of God for the poor is also revealed through the Psalms. Asaph said in Psalm 82 verse 3, Defend the poor and fatherless and do justice to the afflicted and needy. The command to remember the poor was one given to all believers and according to Galatians chapter 2 verse 10 was a particular element of teaching to the Gentile church. And so men or women who reflect the word of God in the heart of, excuse me, the, the man or woman who reflects the word of God in the heart of a man or woman is the heart of a man or woman who cares for the needy of the poor. I'm sorry, I had a typo in my notes there. If you're reflecting the word of God, then you are caring for the poor and the needy. We move from the enumerations of the sin of Sodom in Ezekiel 16 to a New Testament passage that shows the natural consequences of these sins. We see it also in verse 50. They were haughty and committed abomination before me. But there's a New Testament passage that is a little more specific in regard to the consequences of these sins upon the, Sodom, the Sodomites' society. So please turn with me to the book of Jude. Just before Revelation, Jude, Revelation... Uh, there's only one chapter, so you don't need to know which chapter. Jude 1, or Jude. Jude, the brother of James, is writing unto a group of believers and warning them in this passage that they need to earnestly contend for the true faith. In verse 7, we see Jude compare the judgment of the inhabitants of Sodom to that of the fallen angels. And then he says in verse 7 this, Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. The two sins mentioned as consequences of the problems in Sodom were these. Giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh. It was a city of excessive sexual perversion completely given over to their sensual lusts. 
We recall from Genesis 19 that these sensual lusts had been so heavily indulged that the men of the city were not even interested in females anymore. They were only interested in homosexuality, which in both Testaments is labeled as a perversion of God's natural order and an abomination to the God of heaven. And so we understand the sin of Sodom to be uh, a sin that manifested itself in these wicked ways, but began with much deeper roots, with pride, with fullness of bread, with idleness, and with a unwillingness to care for the poor in the land, manifesting itself in uh, sexual um, perversions. Question is, why devote so much time to the sins of Sodom? Why, why should we look into this particularly this evening. Two reasons I'd like us to do so as we apply. The first is because of the parallels between the sins of Sodom and perhaps our nation as you think about our nation. The second, as I told you, will be an encouragement. Hasn't been encouraging too far, too, uh, thus far, has it? But I intend to cur- encourage you at the end of this message. Western civilization is along this same path of the sins of Sodom. I was reading an article this week, a speech made by Vladimir Putin. He's the current president of Russia. Russia's getting a lot of flack from Western society right now because they are banning any sort of homosexual propaganda at the Olympic Games. It's a good thing. But... President Obama, the entire Olympic Committee is openly condemning Russia for this blatant discrimination against homosexuals. The entire Western world, including Western Europe, is up in arms over this choice. And as Vladimir Putin defended himself this week, he said this. He said, Western the Western world has lost its appreciation for Christianity. It is no longer Christian. He said it has been proven time and time again that when these sexual abominations occur, civilization, the destruction of civilization is not far behind. And so he said we are supporting morality for the sake of civilization. He just... Russia just rightly called the Western world godless. And Russia just condemned the Western world for godlessness. Forty years ago, fifty years ago, USSR, wasn't that one of the big condemnations of them at the time? The godless communists. And they, communism is a godless uh, uh, political form of politics. It is founded upon atheism. But now the shoe's on the other foot. As Vladimir Putin defends his decision to not allow homosexuality to be openly displayed in the Olympic Games for the sake of civilization. Interesting. Western civilization. Pride. Self-sufficiency. Idleness. Uncharitableness. Fornication. Unrestrained sensuality. I would certainly encourage you and allow, uh, to allow the Holy Spirit to work on you in any areas of 
your life that may reflect this as well, but that's not the purpose of my message this evening. Consider with me Proverbs 14.34. Righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. If you were to observe the culture and actions of our nation, if you were to observe the culture and actions of Western civilization as a whole and compare it to the list of the sins of Sodom, how would we do? Consider the list again. Is there anything on this list that does not fully describe the United States today? Are we not an excessively proud nation honestly believing that the world revolves around us? Are we not a nation full of bread? Even the poorest among us have more than most nations. Are we not an idle nation? Is not what's going on right now in New Jersey a perfectly good example of how idle of a nation we are? As the Super Bowl goes on right now and amusements have consumed the thoughts of the entire nation? Are we not an uncharitable nation? Propping up our self-interests more than those truly in need? Are we not a nation wholly given over to sexual sin? Didn't we talk about that this morning? Didn't we see it this morning? As we talked about the Grammys just last Sunday night. Is our nation not as Sodom and Gomorrah? Say, Pastor, what's your point? It's an encouraging point. Let's get there. Turn with me again to Genesis 18. Not Genesis 19 this time, Genesis 18. I began this sermon by asking you a question. A question about making a difference. Have you ever wondered if you could actually make a difference? Have you ever thought, can I make a difference? Is there any way that you and I could ever actually make a difference? I don't know if you've ever made a difference in someone's life. Genesis chapter 18. In verse 22. The scriptures tell us that as the men, that would be these two angels, turned their faces from thence and went towards Sodom, says, but Abraham stood yet before the Lord. These two men were heading to Sodom and something delayed them. And what delayed them, or should I say who delayed them, was a man named Abraham. All throughout Abraham's pleas for mercy upon the city, he recognized that he was an unworthy man petitioning the God of the universe for Mercies that were wholly undeserved by the people. Abraham was well aware of Sodom. As a matter of fact, we would find a few chapters earlier that Lot, having lived in Sodom, was in Sodom when the king of Sodom and Gomorrah and a confederacy of kings were, were overtaken and, and um, were conquered by another set of kings. And they took Lot away. Abraham got his servants together and he went after them and he slew them and he brought the goods back to the city and he brought Lot and his family back. And when he got there, 
the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah said, take of the spoils. And Abraham said, I'm not going to take one thing from you. Because if I take anything from you, you're going to go around telling everybody that it's you who has made Abraham rich and not God. The, the reputation of Sodom was so wicked already that Abraham wouldn't take anything from them. He said, let my men take what they'll take and enough to cover expenses and that's it. I don't want anything more from you. And yet through all of that, Abraham says as he continues in Genesis 18, 23, And Abraham drew near and said, Wilt thou also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Peradventure there be fifty righteous within the city. Wilt thou also destroy and not spare the place for fifty righteous that are therein? That be far from thee to do after this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked, and that the righteous should be as the wicked. That be far from thee. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And the Lord said, If I find in Sodom fifty righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. And Abraham answered and said, Behold, now I have taken upon me to speak unto the Lord, which am but dust and ashes. Peradventure there shall lack five of the fifty righteous. Wilt thou destroy all the city for a lack of five? And he said, If I find there forty-five, I will not destroy it. And he spake unto him yet again and said, Peradventure there shall be forty found there. And he said, I will not do it for forty's sake. And he said unto him, Oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Peradventure there shall be thirty, there shall thirty be found there. And he said, I will not do it if I find thirty there. And he said, Behold, now I have taken upon me to speak unto the Lord. Peradventure there shall be twenty found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for twenty's sake. And he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak yet but this once. Peradventure, ten shall be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for ten's sake. Then the Lord went his way as soon as he had left communing with Abraham. And Abraham returned into his place. Well, we know what happened in Genesis 19. But you know, when judgment was promised against the wicked people of Sodom, Abraham did not rejoice in that judgment like Jonah did when he was called to announce Nineveh's destruction. Abraham, upon hearing of the judgment of God, did his best to stand between God and this city. Literally, he did, didn't he, in verse 22. God was leaving, the angel of the Lord was leaving, and Abraham stood between him and Sodom and said, can I talk to you for just a minute? He pleaded with God to spare the city for the sake of the righteous within. And this is my challenge to you this evening as we go from here. We are God's righteous in the midst of a wicked and perverse nation. This group is a group of believers in the midst of a very dark area of the country. An area that is steeped in false religion, confusion, And our sense of justice might give us a little bit of glee every time we hear of the wicked getting their, getting their due, getting what's come to them. But may I encourage you to be willing to be the one that would stand between God and the wicked nation deserving judgment. 
May I encourage you to be the one that spends the time on his knees asking God for divine mercy upon this people, people all around us. May I encourage you to be the righteous remnant who will seek to delay the judgment of God. Surely we want our Lord to return. Surely we want every knee to bow before our God. But surely we can be the people who stand in the gap between God and this perverse nation. We can be those that please the Lord. We can be those that are the righteous remnant in a wicked land. We can be those in the darkness who are the light. We can be those that are seeking to pull those out of the fire. We can be those that are pleading with God for the souls of men. We can be those that are working with God for the souls of men. Because that's why we're here. And so this evening we considered the sins of Sodom. And they were great. And for those sins, God consumed the city and the surrounding cities with fire and brimstone. I don't believe God is going to do that in our age. We see nothing in the Bible that would lend itself to that until the end. But the wickedness is there. And rather than sit on our mount like Jonah did and wait to see the city burn, let's do what Abraham did. Let's stand between the wicked and perverse people and the Lord and say, God, will you not grant mercy? Let's intercede on behalf of the wicked nation in order that we might see more souls saved more people brought into the kingdom. Not for our glory, but for God's. Let's pray.